Genesis is a book of origins. That's what the word Genesis means, beginnings or origins. Genesis takes us back to the very beginning, which is very important in understanding our sense of worth, because our sense of worth as human beings depends upon our understanding of our origin. But many today are so focused on the present that they regard the past as meaningless. Secularism means living with, within the bounds of this age, is to live with our outlook confined to this period alone, without the past, without the future, and above all, without God, who is, of course, in both the past and the future and is sovereign in control over both of them. The late R.C. Sproul writes of the secular man, Man in the 20th, 20th century has been busily engaged in a quest for dignity. It is a very earnest request. The civil rights movement developed the cry, we are human beings, we are creatures of dignity, we want to be treated as beings of dignity. So also have others. But the existentialists tells us that our roots are in nothingness, that our future is in nothingness. And he asks, think. Man, if your origins are in nothing and your destiny is in nothing, how can you possibly have any dignity now? If history tells us that we have emerged from slime, that we are only grown-up germs, what difference can it possibly make whether we are black germs or white germs, whether we are free germs or enslaved germs? Who cares? We can sing of the dignity of man, but unless we understand the dignity is rooted substantially in that which has intrinsic value, all our songs about human rights and dignity are simply whistling in the darkness. They are naive, simplistic, and credulous. The existentialist understands that. He says, you're playing games when you call yourself creatures of dignity. If all that you have is the present, there is no dignity, only nothingness, end quote. The book of Genesis provides the background to our origins, not merely the origins of one particular family, but the origins of matter, life, values, evil, grace, the family, nations, and much, much more, which all unite us together. Without the teaching of this book, Life itself is meaningless. In fact, without the teaching of this book, there'll be parts of the Bible which will be meaningless. Without this book, the book of Genesis, the Bible would be like the last act in a play without the first act. Henry Morris wrote, the books of the Old Testament narrating God's dealings with the people of Israel would be provincial and bigoted were they not set in the context of God's developing purposes for all mankind as laid down in the early chapters of Genesis. The New Testament describing the execution and implementation of God's plan for man's redemption is redundant and anachronistic except in light of man's desperate need for salvation as established in the record of man's primeval history recorded only in Genesis. A believing understanding of the book of Genesis is therefore a prerequisite to an understanding of God 
and his meaning to man, end quote. The Bible begins with God who has no beginning. He is the first subject mentioned, the very first verse in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The opening chapters of Genesis also tells us about the origin of man and the family, the human family, which is not something that has been dreamed up by fallen men and women. No, the human family is something that has been established by God for our good even before the fall. Polygamy, prostitution, promiscuity, divorce, homosexuality, they are corruptions of God's original order. And they bring frustration, misery, and eventual judgment upon those who practice them. But as people return to God's original design, His original plan for the home, the ordering of the genders, the responsibilities within marriage, the responsibilities of a husband and a wife, then they are blessed. Genesis tells us of the origin of evil, the great fall. It also tells us the origin of salvation, in fact, the gospel, uh, the, 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 the proto-evangelion is, is promised there in Genesis 3.15 that there will be one who will come to undo the results of Adam's transgressions. Genesis also tells us about the divine origin of judgment, which of course is going to be the focus of the next few chapters as we look at the greatest judgment that has ever occurred on this earth. When the secularists in the middle of the last century cut the society of the day off from the sense of history, there were cries of joyous appreciation. But to be free from the past, particularly from the biblical past with God and His moral standards and the threats of judgment, well, that seemed to be true liberation. Man was free, free to do as he pleases, like he wanted to do all along without fear of God or of divine judgment. But now man is adrift in a great sea of nothingness, having come from nothing, drifting into a meaningless shore. No wonder man is empty and frustrated, miserable, depressed, without any direction. He gained so-called freedom, but he lost the sense of value, meaning true dignity but praise be to God that our origin has been preserved and it has been revealed to us in the book of Genesis where we have been made in the image of the almighty God therefore we are creatures of value yes fallen tragically but redeemable by God through the power and grace displayed by Jesus Christ Genesis can be divided in a number of ways. Some have divided it based on the polar dot formula, the these are the generations of, and it occurs 10 times throughout the book of Genesis. But a simple division is just dividing it in two. Genesis 1 through 11, you could call that the primitive history, whereby there are four key events in Genesis 1 through 11. The first major event is creation. The second major event is the fall. The third major event which we're currently studying is the flood. And then the fourth major event in this primitive history is the dispersion of the nations that occurs at, Babylon, at, at the Tower of Babel. Creation, fall, flood, nations. Four key events in the primitive history. 
The next section of Genesis is Genesis 12 through 50, which you could call that the patriarchal history, the history of the patriarchs. And just like the primitive history is divided into four key events, the patriarchal history is divided into four key patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. We're still in the primitive history, although we have covered the first two major events, creation and the fall. Now we're in the third major event, the flood. Last Sunday, we looked at Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, where we explored the pivotal moment in human history where we see God's response to this rampant increase of human depravity. Moses vividly displays this escalating moral decay of humanity, which leads to God's sorrow, his grief, and leads to his divine judgment, which he will pour out upon the earth. However, we saw that in the midst of this chaos, a beacon of light emerges in Noah, who found favor in God's eyes. Noah's obedience and faithfulness stood as a stark contrast to the absolute corruption and wickedness of the world in which he lived in, leading to God ultimately sparing Noah and his family from the impending flood. This morning, we're going to pick up from verse 9, and we're only going to cover verses 9 through 12. And so let's read Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among, among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. So reads God's holy and authoritative word. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, Moses contrasts righteous Noah with the corrupt world. So that you and I would seek God's favor and flee wickedness. He contrasts righteous Noah with the corrupt world in which he was living so that you and I would pursue God's grace and flee from wickedness. We begin with Noah's righteousness, which we see in verses 9 and 10. Noah's righteousness. When Charles Haddon Spurgeon began preaching in London in 1855, he was ridiculed perhaps more than any man in his generation, mocked. They said that his preaching was an outmoded gospel, that his preaching was foolishness. Although many came to hear him, the sophisticated commentators of his day, his popularity within this rabble would be short-lived. Up like a rocket, down like a stick was their judgment. But Spurgeon hung on, saying that although he stood alone, he stood on the word of God that cannot be shaken. He said that he was willing to be called a dog now, knowing that in 50 years' time he would be vindicated, whilst those who may have reputations now would be discredited. Today, of course, we remember Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but his critics, we know not their name. 
It's always this way with God's people. Athanasius stood alone. Luther stood alone. John Knox stood alone. In their day, they were ridiculed. They were threatened. Some of them even were persecuted, believed. But they triumphed God, whose word is never shaken. Such was the case, the ark builder. There's a promise in Isaiah 41, verses 10 through 12. Do not fear. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but will not find them. Those who war with you will be as nothing and non-existent. Appropriate. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, we see a very familiar phrase. And I gave you a clue. It's one of the ways that we divide the book. It's according to this polar dot formula. These are the generations of. These are the generations of Noah. Verse 9 begins this new section, which really begins in in chapter 6 and stretches all the way through to Genesis 9. The story of Noah, of an individual. And really, it's the longest story of any individual that we have thus far. It's a story of faithful endurance in the midst of great wickedness. A story of a solitary saint, a man who stood alone ridiculed by the society in which he was living. He was the last descendant of a godly line from Adam through Seth. When Noah was born, six of his ancestors were still living. Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, and then Noah's father, Lamech. But by the time of the flood, they had all died. But like the righteousness that is in all ages, their works lived on in this case, in and through Noah. We told that Noah was a righteous man, blameless amongst those in his generation, and like his, his ancestor Enoch, he too walked with God, which was why he was able to stand for God and with God in the midst of the ungodliness of the pre-flood generation. How did Noah get to be blameless before God? Well, to answer this question, we must go back to the preceding verse, verse 8, where we are told Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. Some people read these verses as if Noah found favor with God because he was righteous and because he lived a blameless life. That's why he found favor before God. But that's not the case. In fact, that's to get it backwards. Verse 9 doesn't come before verse 8. It's not even connected to verse 8 with a causal participle between them, as if Noah found grace because he was righteous. Actually, Noah's righteousness was the product of him having found favor with God. It's the proof of that favor, not the grounds. It's a very important biblical principle. Because the grace of God always comes before any action of our own. Grace grace always precedes righteous living. 
we often imagine ourselves in our unsanctified state, almost as if that God's love for us is because there is something within us that is intrinsically valuable. Or maybe something that we have done or something that we can become. That's the reason why God loves us, right? Because we are worthy of His love. Something really good about us. Or actually, there's something that He's going to do when we're saved, right? That's why He loved us. No. God doesn't love us because of those things. Nor is He gracious to us because of that. On the contrary, He loves us solely because He loves us. He is gracious to us only because He is gracious. Later in the Bible, we, we see this stated explicitly. God speaking through Moses and is telling his people, for he's explaining to his people why he loves them. He says in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, Yahweh did not set his affection on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because Yahweh loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now part of the statement is clear, the denial, it's clear enough. But at first glance, the remainder of the sentence doesn't seem to really make much sense. Yahweh did not love Israel because they were numerous, but then the sentence goes on, but he loved them because he loved them. I mean, what kind of logic is that? I love you because I love you. It's not the logic of Aristotle, but it is the logic of grace. Grace is grace. If grace were based upon anything in us, then it would no longer be grace. In fact, it would not operate even as something less than grace, for there's nothing in us that can possibly draw forth God's favor. Yet grace is showered upon the undeserving. But what's even more wonderful than that, it's not merely that we are undeserving of His grace. We are deserving of something. We're deserving of the complete opposite. What we deserve is God's wrath. And yet God has shown grace. As Paul says in Romans 5 verse 8, But God demonstrated His love towards us, and that whilst we were still sinners still enemies of Christ, he died for us. Noah found this grace, and it was this grace which changed his life, which resulted in a righteous life. There's three areas where we see that God's grace has changed Noah's life. Firstly, he said to have become a righteous man. Noah's the first man in the Bible of whom this is said, but of course, he's not the first person which was characterized by righteousness. The word group righteous, which is tzaddik in Hebrew, it often conveys a forensic nature in which the righteous person or the just one meets the standard of right conduct. In the Mosaic law, the standard, really the Mosaic law is an overflow of the character of God. It's his holy law. And the person who meets this right standard doesn't suffer death, but the transgressor experiences God's retribution. Noah's conduct exonerated him. He survived the, the ordeal because he was not committed to the violence that was practiced by his generation. 
He was set apart from the wickedness of his generation. It's important that this is said here in connection with this first mention in the Bible of God's grace because this is the first fruit or expression of grace. Grace leads to righteousness. The Lord Jesus said the same thing when he said of those who profess to love him, if you love me, you will obey me. John 14, 15. The Apostle John said, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commandments. 1 John 2, verse 3. Now we mustn't hurry over this because this doesn't only apply to Noah, but to you and I as well. It's meant to check presumption in our lives. We often have the tendency to dismiss the force of this word by applying it to maybe our standing before God rather than our lives, our actions. But if we are justified, then we'll begin to act justly. If we've been shown grace, then we'll begin to act righteously. If we don't act justly, then our claim to be justified is merely presumption. And our faith is, like what James describes, is a dead faith, which hasn't resulted in works. Do you act justly? Do you show the righteousness of God in areas of personal integrity, in your business, in your family life, in your general morality? Is it evident to those around us? Can they see and testify of your righteousness? We may notice that Noah is not merely said to have been a righteous man, but even as we know from 2 Peter 2.5, he was a preacher of righteousness. He preached righteousness much like his great-grandfather Enoch had done before him. And the reason why he could preach righteousness is because he himself was righteous. In fact, the reason why we have so few preachers of righteousness today is because despite their profession, their lives are often not characterized by righteousness. We therefore need to live righteously and commend righteousness in our day and age. Pursue holiness. Then you will be most useful to the Lord. The second area in which God's grace is said to have changed Noah's life is in relation to, in, is in his relationship with others, others within his day and age. He's said to have been blameless. It's a word which is very closely related to righteousness. Blameless is tamim. It means complete or sound. It indicates moral uprightness and integrity in the person's behavior. This is how people of Noah's time perceived him, regarding him as blameless. He maintained his fidelity and his purity. He didn't follow the others. He didn't follow the pack. He swam against the, the stream. But his faithfulness, though without apparent reward at the proper time, is acclaimed, as, acclaimed by the only one whose opinion counted for life. God regard, regarded him as blameless. The idea seems to be not only that Noah acted uprightly before the Lord, but his lifestyle, his behavior was evident before a watching world. They testified to his blamelessness. 
One of the qualifications of an elder is that he is well thought of by outsiders. He's not only tested within the family, within the church, but even within the world. Speaking to neighbors, employers, employees as to his conduct. Do we do that? Or do we compromise our profession by our speech, by our conduct that causes the world to conclude that really we are no different to the world in which we live in? What a shame. Finally, Noah is said to have walked with God. This is the third area in which God's grace affected his life. It's closely related to the other two. You remember that in the case of Enoch, of whom it is said that he too walked with God, there's three ideas that went along with it. Firstly, his awareness of the coming judgment. Secondly, the ungodliness of his generation, which of course resulted in the great flood. And then thirdly, that he walked with God. And no doubt each of these areas affect one another. The more Noah thought about the coming judgment of God, the more he was aware of the ungodliness that surrounded him. The more he was aware of their ungodliness, the closer he walked with God. And the closer he walked with God, the more he was aware of God's judgment. Again, the closer he walked with God, the more he was aware of the evil and the unrighteousness. This was Noah's life. He walked with God, which led him to live blamelessly, which caused him to preach righteousness. Commentator Alexander McLaren said, This communion is the foundation of all righteous conduct. Because Noah walked with God, he was just and perfect. If we live habitually in the holy of holies, our faces will shine when we come forth. If we desire to be good and pure, we must dwell with God, and His Spirit will pass into our hearts, and we shall bear the fragrance of His presence wherever we go. We begin communion with Him, indeed, not by holiness, but by faith. But it is not kept up without the cultivating of purity." End quote cultivation cultivating i like this word it implies work it takes work in order for us to be godly the pursuit of holiness requires effort on our behalf yes noah's name means rest and he entered that rest in due course as all who know god will but his years involved hard labor yes physical labor constructing an ark which took him 120 years to build, but spiritual labor as he resisted the temptation and the wickedness around him, as he mortified his flesh and pursued righteousness, as he depended upon God's grace to empower him and enable him to live a set-apart life within his generation. And in issuing the covenant sign of circumcision later to Abraham, it really implied, walk before me and be blameless, which we'll see when we get to Genesis 17. Noah's life not only mirrors the example of Enoch, but even Adam, Adam and Eve, who walked with God in the garden. His exemplary life of righteousness serves as a powerful reminder of the transformative power of God's grace. God's grace transforms it sanctifies. Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh before he was deemed righteous by him, 
because grace always precedes and enables righteous living. Don't mix the two up. As believers, we must prioritize seeking grace above striving in our own efforts to be righteousness, almost white-knuckling, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We should continually seek God's grace, for when we receive it, our lives will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. By cultivating a deep and intimate relationship with God through prayer, through worship, through obedience to His Word, we will walk along the paths of righteousness laid out before us. And as we saw, Noah's righteousness was not merely a label, but a reflection of his character and his conduct. Despite the corruption that surrounded him, Noah remained faithful. He was obedient to God's commands, and we'll see this obedience unfolded as we continue in our study. We, like Noah, also live in a very wicked world. But we too can be encouraged by his example. The means for living a godly life requires that we receive God's grace, that we walk in humble dependence upon him. We live according to God's standards of morality, maintaining integrity in every area of our lives. It begins in our minds, capturing our thoughts, handing them over in obedience to Christ. For what we think, what we meditate upon, will eventually come out of our mouths, out of the overflow of the mouth, the, the heart the mouth speaks. And what comes out of our mouths will be eventually become true of our lifestyle, of our behavior. Our righteousness should be evident to those around us, serving as a testimony of God's powerful, transformative grace. Noah's blamelessness distinguished him from the wicked generation in which he lived in. Living in a world that often celebrates compromise and moral relativism, we are called to stand firm in the faith and uphold biblical principles of righteousness. Stand firm. Take up the shield of faith. Put on the armor of God as you strive to live righteously in this generation. Yes, this will, this will require courage. It will require conviction in order to resist the patterns and the pressures of the world in which we live in. And in fact, it's not just pressures outside of us, it's even pressures inside of us as our old man seeks to dominate. We must put him to death to maintain our witness as followers of Christ, even when we are shunned and ridiculed by the world in which we live in. Noah's intimate relationship with God fueled his obedience and sustained him in the face of such opposition and attack. And just as Noah walked closely with God, we too are called to cultivate a deep and abiding relationship with Him, to abide in Christ. It involves daily surrender, daily time of prayer and meditation upon His truth. Blessed is the man who meditates upon the law of the Lord. As we walk in communion with God, His Spirit will guide us. His Spirit will comfort us. And His Spirit will empower us to live lives that honor Him. Noah not only lived a righteous life, but he also proclaimed righteousness. His commitment to righteousness extended beyond personal piety to a mission of calling others to repentance and faith in God's salvation. And as ambassadors of Christ, we too are to proclaim a message of reconciliation 
that they too might be reconciled with God by grace through faith in Christ alone. We are to share the gospel boldly and lovingly, calling others to turn from their sin and to turn to the Lord in faith, in dependence upon Him. To stop striving to earn salvation. Remember, grace precedes works. Work saves none. We are saved by grace alone. May we, like Noah, be faithful and obedient servants who reflect God's righteousness in all that we do. Noah is a man of righteousness. And of course, he stands in stark contrast to the corrupt world in which he was living in, which we see in verses 11 and 12. We've seen Noah's righteousness. Let's now turn our attention to the world in which he lived, the corrupt world. Verse 11 and 12, I'll read that again. Now the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. The justification for the calamity is the complete moral corruption of humanity and the defilement of the earth. You see, repeated three times in these verses is the word corrupt, emphasizing God's view of the, hum, of the human condition, proving, of course, the legitimacy of the divine judgment that was forthcoming soon coming the earth likewise is repeated three times connecting humanity with the earth although human humanity sinned the earth too will suffer romans 8 tells us that even creation now is groaning for the return of christ our sin not only affects us but it even affects the world in which we live in this corruption is further defined by the term violence the hebrew word is hamas verse 11 which is used for severe treatment of another, often involving physical harm. Hamas means violence or wrong. Whereas God had blessed the human family with the power to procreate and fill the earth and rule it and subdue it and have dominion over the earth, the wickedness has now filled the earth by procreation of violence. Hamas, violence, typically refers to the behavior of either individual or groups, and it can often mean psychological or physical. The word for corrupt is used in a number of ways within this chapter. After it's introduced in verse 11, where God indicates that people have corrupted their ways, the results grieved, as we saw last Sunday. Yahweh regretted that He had made man. He had regretted, verse 6, now, how are we to understand this? Yahweh regretting that He has made man. How are we to understand that Yahweh is grieved? When we typically feel remorse for something, we typically refrain from repeating it. Often such remorse signifies a wish that the action had never occurred in the, in the first place. Terms like God feeling sorrow or being sorry or repenting, regretting or changing his mind has sparked much theological debate and confusion. Some have reevaluated the understanding of God, which we see evident in something called openness theology. Openness theology presents a perspective of God and his relationship with time and the world that differs from traditional views. 
It suggests that God interacts with humanity within the framework of time, experiencing events as they unfold, and to some extent being influenced by them. Rather than perceiving all of human existence in a timeless manner, openness theology proposes that God learns and reacts to events as they occur, implying a dynamic relationship with creation. Advocates of openness theology argue that this view provides a more authentic understanding of God's engagement within human choices. However, critics, such as yours truly, raise concerns about reconciling this concept of God's foreknowledge within this framework. The appropriate view, the biblical view, the, the correct view to understand God's regret, God's grief, God's sorrow or changing of mind or even repenting is to recognize this as anthropomorphic language used to describe God's actions without attributing human limitations to Him. God expresses regret over creating humanity due to the widespread wickedness of the earth. This expression employs anthropomorphic language which is used to convey God's response to human actions in terms that are understandable to us. The infinite God made understandable to our finite minds. Other, other anthropomorphic language would be ascribing eyes or a nose or a hand to God. God's not limited to that. He doesn't really have eyes and a nose and a hand as we know them. That's anthropomorphic language. It's to help us understand Him. Here, anthropopathism, describing emotion, human emotion to God, who is immutable and, uh, what's the word, Joe? It means that not only does he not change, but his emotions are unchanging. It's one of the perfections that we learned a few years ago. We're going to have to brush up. God's expression of regret doesn't imply a change in His eternal decrees or character. Instead, it communicates the depth of His sorrow and His disappointment in response to human, humanity's sin, highlighting His personal engagement with His creation. Genesis 6.6 is, is not the only scripture that describes God's response to human actions. Ver, verse 7 also describes it. And there we see... God's judgment, affirming His unwavering commitment to justice and righteousness. Essentially, Genesis 6-6 illustrates the tension between God's re relatable expressions of emotions together with His immutable, His unchanging character. There's a tension. It's a theological antinomy, a tension that exists. But it's in order to help us understand God's deep involvement with creation. He's not a God like the deists say, created the world and stepped aside. No, He is intimately involved. His providence is unfolding. His hands are at work, not literal hands, but His hands are at work within every aspect of creation. And we see His sorrow, His grief over man's sin. And then, of course, His commitment to provide salvation. Praise be to God that He didn't forsake creation. Following the cleansing by water, Yahweh restores the earth, securing and replenishing it through a covenant decree, the Noah covenant, which we're going to get to. Verse 12 intentionally recalls verse 5, 
where Yahweh saw the intensity of human evil and every and all, all those inclusive words. It recalls Genesis 131, where Yahweh saw the earth after creating it, after making it and declaring it good. Here, God saw that the good earth was now corrupt. And the corruption was all-inclusive, all people, excepting Noah. And for this reason, only Noah was left, Noah and his family, the eight of them in total. The burden of guilt rests upon man, but the whole earth suffers as a result of man's sin. And the phrase, their way, it reiterates that sin wasn't an isolated event here or there. This corruption pervaded, it was characteristic of their lifestyle, the lifestyle of this pre-flood population. They are corrupt to the cultural core. And this is always true of sin. What initially begins as an isolated sinful choice, if not quickly repented of, very quickly morphs into a habit and then into a lifestyle. It consumes us and characterizes us. So keep short accounts of sin. Be quick to repent. Flesh, which first occurred in the Eden story, describing the one flesh union between husband and wife, Adam and Eve, here it emphasizes human mortality. Humanity cannot stand up against the raging waves of the flood, which is soon forthcoming. God's response to the corruption and the violence of the human world is this worldwide cataclysm. But he also provides safe haven for one because he found favor, grace with God. This account illustrates the severity of sin. Sin permeates every aspect of human life and society, leading to moral decay and brokenness. We see this in the world around us. We see this every time we read the newspapers or turn on the news. We see this every time we look in the mirror. As believers, we shouldn't turn a blind eye to sin. Rather, we call to confront it with truth and righteousness. Yes, in gentleness and in love. This, of course, involves first self-reflection, confession and repentance of our own, both individually and corporately as a church. But we are to speak God's truth and love to one another and into this world who are so lost. God's response to the corruption in Noah's time reveals his holiness, even as Bertie prayed. We see God's holiness and his justice as he deals with sin. Therefore, we shouldn't take the consequences of sin, sin both in our personal lives and even in our society. We, we need to take them seriously. It should motivate us to mortify the flesh. It should motivate us to proclaim the gospel, which will set them free from sin's enslavement. But as we see, despite the corruption of humanity, God remains faithful. Faithful to his covenant promises. He preserves Noah and his family through the flood, and he renews his creation and establishes a covenant with the rainbow being the sign of the covenant, which we will get to. As recipients of God's covenant grace, we are under the new covenant, the covenant of Christ, the law of love. We are called likewise to live faithfully, to live obediently to God's standard as revealed in his word. This, of course, includes trusting God's promises, especially in the face of adversity, 
but then actively being participants of God's kingdom work here on earth, that His will in heaven might be done here on earth, serving Him, serving His church, being ambassadors of Christ. The story of Noah reminds us that God's judgment is always accompanied with the promise of restoration. After the flood, we know there was renewal, and there was a promise never again to destroy the earth in the same way. And as you and I faced trials of various kinds, we too can find hope, knowing that God will bring restoration. He will bring renewal. In the midst of chaos and calamity, there will be rest that will follow. And this hope enables us to persevere in the face of such difficulties, to endure, to have our faith strengthened, knowing that in the midst of these trials, we are being made more and more like Christ, made more effective to fulfill His kingdom purposes within this world. And so as we navigate the complexities of the world in which we live in, may we remain steadfast and committed to righteousness, trusting in God's sovereign plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in humility and confession. We acknowledge, O Lord, that we have fallen short of your standard of righteousness as exemplified by Noah. Lord, please forgive us for the times that we have strayed from your path and yielded to the temptations of the flesh and the temptations within this world. We confess, O God, that we often fall short of reflecting your holiness and your grace in our thoughts, in our words, and in our behavior. Yet this morning we come before you with contrite hearts, seeking your mercy and your forgiveness. Oh God, please wash us clean. Renew a right spirit within us. We plead for your grace and your strength to apply your truth that we've learned this morning. Grant us the wisdom and the courage to stand firm in our faith, to be characterized by righteousness to preach righteousness, to be regarded by the watching world around us as being blameless, set apart from the world, set apart unto God and holy living. Oh God, help us to walk with you in communion with you. May your spirit work in us and through us to bring about transformation and renewal in our lives and within our church. Lord, once again, we commit ourselves into your hands, trusting in your faithfulness and your grace to sustain us and empower us every step of the way. May your name be glorified in us and through us, in all that we think and say and do. This we pray in dependence of you and in the the name of Jesus.